KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. President Biden recently signed an executive order ordering the Justice Department to end its reliance on private prisons. Now, this sounds like a big deal, but is it? Is it a step towards ending mass incarceration? And just how prevalent are private prisons in the U.S.? To find out the answers to these questions and more, we reached out to Dr. Caitlin Taylor. She is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at LaSalle University. Give a listen. Before we talk about what the Biden administration is doing with regards to private prisons, kind of give us a quick little primer here. I think a lot of people would be surprised over the concept of a privately run prison. Kind of, you know, talk about how prevalent it is and and how is this a relatively new thing? Yeah, so private prisons in the United States started popping up in the 1980s, but their use really exploded through the 1990s and early 2000s. The first private facility was an immigration detention facility that opened in 1983 in Texas. It was run by one of the leaders in the private prison business, Corrections Corporation of America. Um, But through the 1990s and 2000s, we really saw the number of prisoners in private prisons increased by 1,600%. So that's when things really took off in in terms of private prisons. Much of that increase, that 1,600%, just simply reflects the increase in the overall size and growth of the prison population during that time period. But there's definitely a good chunk of that that's a general rise in the use of, of private prisons. In terms of the extent of their use today, as of 2020, less than 9% of all prison beds in the country are in private prisons. So if we're thinking about the scope of mass incarceration, private prisons are a relatively small portion of that. We have of about the 2.3 million people incarcerated, about 120,000 people are in private prison. So 120,000 people in private prisons, that's still a lot of people, but in the scope of mass incarceration in the U.S. is, is pretty small. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank who does a lot of the really leading work on estimating current prison populations, They estimated that in 2020, private prisons had the majority of these people in state prisons, uh, privately run state prisons, with fewer in the federal prison system and then even fewer in ICE facilities and immigration and customs enforcement. There's really a few companies that dominate the private prison game. Uh, CoreCivic, which used to be Corrections Corporation of America, is one of the biggest Another leader is GeoGroup. So in terms of the state of private prisons right now, those are the two real leaders in the industry. How does a private prison differ from, I don't know, I'll use the term traditional prison at the state and federal level? I mean, I guess it starts with accountability. What are the differences here? 
Great question. So I think we need to think about the motivations behind a private prison. And the main reason that private prisons came about was because these private businesses claimed to be able to run them more cost effectively than the state could, than public prisons could be run. And the research is fairly mixed on whether private prisons save taxpayers money even at the front end. But we know that when private prisons do cost less than public prisons, they do that through some pretty unethical or questionable means. And the way that they can run more cost effectively is because they offer fewer rehabilitation programs to people incarcerated. So there's fewer access to things like job training or substance abuse treatment. Healthcare is even worse. Um, and the other way they save money is because they provide guards less training and fewer benefits, lower salaries. Um, and there's real consequences of these things, right? So conditions in private prisons are worse than in public prisons. Rates of institutional violence and misconducts are higher, right? There's If there's fewer positive things for people incarcerated to be doing and staff are more poorly trained, the conditions in private prisons, we should not be surprised, are a lot worse. Um, there's also some research to suggest that recidivism rates or the likelihood that somebody reoffends and commits a new crime after they come home are higher for people who come out of private prisons than public prisons. So one of the big differences is, is in terms of the quality of the rehabilitation pro rehabilitative programs as well as the staff training. It seems to me a very dangerous business model when you think about a private company holding a, opening a prison from the simple fact that you're going to, in order to remain solvent, you're dependent on more people being incarcerated, which the cynic in me leads to believe that we find more reasons to incarcerate people. Absolutely. I think we can't overlook the fact that private prisons have a vested financial interest in making sure there are as many people incarcerated as possible and that as many people as possible will reoffend. They make money based off of the number of people incarcerated. So it's really not in their financial interest to provide rehabilitative programming. They have an incentive to support get tough on crime legislation. And so, you know, part of this argument that people say private prisons are unethical is because the government is contracting with a business who makes money by ensuring they have a ready pool of people to incarcerate. Um, and so it gets us into a discussion about what should the goal of corrections be if our goal of corrections is just doling out punishment, is just about retribution, is just about making people pay for the harms that they've caused, then this discussion about private prisons doesn't matter so much, right? But if the goal of corrections, we think, should be something about rehabilitation, then private prisons perhaps become a little more problematic. So there's private at the state and federal level, you mentioned, correct? Yes. And are these, are these sprinkled throughout the country? Are they concentrated in certain areas of the country? 
Yeah, it might be helpful to first think about how the correction system breaks down into different parts. So I think I mentioned that the U.S. has 2.3 million people incarcerated, and these 2.3 million people are spread out across several different types of correctional facilities. Some people are in prisons and some people are in jails. So prison is for people who have been convicted of a crime and are serving a sentence of one to two years or more. Jail is for people at the local level, at the county level, who have not yet been convicted and are in jail waiting for their cases to be resolved, as well as in jail are people who are serving shorter sentences of one to two years or less. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, if you get sentenced to a very random number, 23 and a half months or less, you serve that sentence in a local jail. If you have a sentence of 23 and a half months or more, you serve that sentence in a state prison. Then second, prisons break down into state and federal. State prison is simply for people who have been convicted of and sentenced in state court. Federal prison is for people convicted and sentenced in federal court. Um, So in terms of how this 2.3 million people incarcerated break down, there are way more people in prisons than in jails and way, way more people in state prisons than in federal prisons. So we have about 630,000 people in jails with close to three quarters of them not yet convicted of a crime. But there are 1.3 million people in state prisons and only about 225,000 people in federal prisons. So even not looking just at the private versus public issue, we know that by far federal prison is the smallest of all correctional facilities, which means that any action President Biden takes or doesn't take can perhaps set an example or a tone for the states and local jails, but it affects a really small part of our incarcerated population. In terms of how private prisons are spread out over the country, there's great variation by state. So some states like New Mexico, for example, have over half of people incarcerated in their state in private prisons. Then there's quite a few states um, like New York and Illinois that actually ban private prisons entirely. According to an organization called The Sentencing Project, they do a lot of advocacy and research work in this area. As of 2017, there were 28 states that used private prisons. Uh, Locally in Pennsylvania, for a number of years now, Pennsylvania has had only one private jail in the state. None of our state prisons are private, but the one private jail has been in nearby Delaware County, and now that's changing also. The George W. Hill Correctional Facility, which is the local jail for Delco, will transition or is transitioning back to a county-run facility after one of the major players in this business, the GEO Group, has run it for decades now. So that's a pretty big deal locally. So you kind of touched on this, but talk a little bit about what the the recent executive action by President Biden with regards to uh, private prisons on the federal level. What did it say and what, in theory, does it do? Yeah, so this is interesting because he's saying that the, they will not renew any contracts with federal prisons. So that means some of these contracts will still have another year or multiple years on them, but they won't be renewed once they run out. 
there's debate about whether or not this is a big deal or not a big deal. On one hand, there's a lot of people saying that this is progress, that we should see this as a move in the right direction uh, because private prisons are unethical and immoral. And so it's a good thing that the federal government stops using them. On the other hand, we can say that this decision is pretty insignificant, mainly because not one person is going to go home to their families or to the community as a result of ending private prison contracts. So maybe let me kind of talk through some of the reasons first um, why people see this as progress and what this means uh, for people who think that this is, this is significant reform. So many people assert that private prisons are bad because we shouldn't be contracting out a state function, a government function of imposing punishment or carrying out justice, and I use the term justice in prison very loosely, but that we shouldn't be doling out these responsibilities to a private for-profit business, that this is the government's job to do this directly. Other people, of course, think this is good, too, for the reasons we already talked about, that private prisons have this vested financial interest in making sure people come back and that there's more people in, in the system for them to incarcerate. And then there's also the questionable motives about if it if it saves taxpayers money or not. So these are all reasons that people say we should see this as reform, that this is this is a good thing. On the other hand, and this is I kind of see myself in in this side of things, is that I don't think closing private prisons is a very big deal. Should we do it? Yes. Is it great that the Biden administration did it? Yes. But I definitely don't think that the Biden in administration can frame this as a way that they're tackling mass incarceration or is going to make any substantive progress. And the first reason for this in my mind is that, again, closing private prisons in the federal system will not send one person home. People will who are in private prisons will now be moved to public prisons instead might that mean they have greater access to rehabilitative programming or better conditions? Yes, that's important, but nowhere near as important as getting people reunited with their families and their communities. Another reason I don't think this should be considered dramatic reform is because public prisons also have huge profit motives themselves. So we talked about all of the ways that private prisons are perhaps bad because they have this vested financial interest in keeping people incarcerated, all of that exists in public prisons too. So while private prisons get a lot of attention for spending big money lobbying politicians and making campaign contributions in the hopes of getting passed, get tough on crime legislation and all of these things to keep sentences longer, Corrections officers unions in public prisons have also done the same exact thing, right? They have a vested interest in protecting their job security and corrections officers unions are extremely powerful. So the financial interests that are tied up in private prisons are also in place for public prisons. Another way that the profit motive exists in public prisons is because even if the whole institution isn't run by a private company, nearly every good and service within a public prison can still be contracted out to a private company. So things like food, healthcare, 
clothing for staff, as well as people incarcerated, phone calls, private businesses make, make big money through contracts with public prison entities for all of these things. Private businesses also profit from public prisons by using the near slave labor of people incarcerated in public prisons. So big corporations ranging from familiar names like Starbucks to Victoria's Secret to AT&T, Whole Foods, Walmart, you name it, all of these companies have used and or continue to use and exploit the labor of people who are incarcerated. Um, so we can't like just blame the private prison industry as having this vested financial interest in mass incarceration because all of those things exist in public prisons as well. So you talk about the the pool of people or that this would affect uh, that are in federal private prisons. And I guess it would be even less than that because as I understand it, this did not include uh, immigrations and Customs Enforcement, ICE, or anybody in Immigration Corps. Am I correct on that? Yes. And, and why? So, why wouldn't it include that? Yeah, so immigration detention is kind of like a thing separate from corrections in many ways, although we can debate all of the ways in which it's really similar and they are essentially prisons, right? And sometimes prisons with even worse conditions. But for whatever reason, we oftentimes treat them very differently. And we don't have a really specific answer or definitive answer, I should say, for why ICE facilities weren't included. My sense is that the reason they aren't included is because private companies are used so much more for immigration detention than they're used in corrections. So according to the USA Today did some really good reporting last year on immigration detention and private companies. And they reported that more than 75% of immigrant detainees are held in facilities run by five private prison companies. I've seen some other estimates too that are closer to 50% of immigrant detainees are in private detention facilities. But either way, whether it's 75 or 50%, that's way more than are held in private prisons and in the correction system. So it would be a much bigger endeavor to end those contracts and probably a more expensive one. Those contracts can be for longer periods of time. So it would be a much bigger change to figure out how we're going to do immigrant detention in public facilities than it is for corrections. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember, and I say this as someone who only saw this uh, kind of a glancing look at this, but the the Obama administration had done something similar to what the Biden administration, obviously the Trump administration reversed it. But is this act, executive action by Biden, is it basically taking us back to what the Obama administration was in the midst of doing or is it different at all? To be totally honest, I'd have to check the details of what happened under the Obama administration. And part of this really comes down to the length of contracts. So it's easy really to make headlines and say, we're ending private prison contracts. But if some of those private prison contracts don't end for another five years, then that's not all that significant, at least in the short term, right? In contrast, it's possible to not just fail to renew a contract, but to actually 
end a contract, right? So this is what's happening in Delaware County that the county was had a ongoing five-year contract with the geo group for the local jail. And instead of just saying, okay, when this comes out, this is ends in five years, we're not going to renew it. They actually took the financial hit and are ending the contract partway through it. So that that would probably produce greater gains immediately, but with a greater cost to taxpayers. So let's look ahead. Um, what would you like to see, or I shouldn't say, what would you like to see? You know, we've kind of talked about how you have to really dig into the executive actions to get a feel. What, in your opinion, would be some really, really meaningful reform we could see from the Biden administration? Like, if we start to see X, Y, and Z, that would make you, as someone who studies this, teaches this, follows it, go, whoa, they're really serious. Yeah. So two things come to mind, at least. The first is the acknowledgement that the federal system is such a small piece of mass incarceration, right? Only about 225,000 people of the 2.3 million incarcerated are in federal prison. So that means even if Biden did something, what many would see as outrageous and release every single person from federal prison, that's not really making a huge dent in our mass incarceration problem. So what he could do is kind of the reverse of what the 1994 crime bill did that he sponsored. And that would be to give states financial incentives to reduce their prison populations. If we know that mass incarceration is really a state prison problem, the way the federal government can take action on that is to tie in things like highway funding or funding for schools or anything else to cuts in the size of the prison population. So that would be one really meaningful meaningful thing to encourage action at the state prison level. I think there's also a lot of misinformation, myths, and miscommunication about who makes up the prison population. We hear what have been referred to all of the nons, right? We should have prison reform for nonviolent offenders, right? For drug offenders, for non-sex offenders, for first-time offenders. But in reality, this is a relatively small part of the prison population. In the state prison system, over half of people incarcerated are serving time for a violent offense. It's only about 20% of people who are incarcerated for a drug offense. And so that means if we're really going to be serious about reducing the size of our historically unprecedented prison population, then that means we need to tackle sentencing reform for violent offenses as well. And so I think the federal government can take a role in setting an example as well as setting the tone for what would actually constitute substantive reform. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.